to Rasafari Around the World. Every bat has like their own personality. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the only podcast that analyzes the possible existence of vampires from a scientific perspective, the Rossafari Podcast. This is one of those fun episodes that steps outside of the zoo world to look at some in-situ conservation efforts being undertaken to support animals that need help in the wild. And speaking of support, don't forget that you can support the pod by visiting patreon.com slash rossafari. If you aren't interested in supporting the pod financially, you can still help grow the Rossafari community in a number of ways. Make sure you're following at Rossafari on Instagram and Facebook, tell your friends and family about the show, and of course, leave a five-star rating on any podcast app that allows you to rate the program. Ratings, along with any reviews you might be willing to write, go a long way toward helping people discover the show, which means this fun conservation message will continue to get out to a wider audience. Today, I'm bringing you my interview with Jordi Seegers. Jordi is the... Hold on. Let me take a deep breath here. Jordi is the National Bat White Nose Syndrome Program Coordinator for the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative. Whew, got there. Basically, that means that Jordi is trying to prevent the extinction of bats from a disease that is currently decimating their populations in certain areas of North America. The disease is caused by a fungus called Pseudogymnoascus destructans. And, thanks to the magic of editing, you'll never know how many tries it took me to get that right. Actually, since I'm guessing most of you have never heard of this fungus, you don't even know if I got it right. Hmm. Anyway, this interview gets into all kind of interesting information about bats and white-nose syndrome, but we also take some time to talk about New Guinea singing dogs, leopard geckos, foxes, and, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, vampires. Also, make sure you stay tuned to the very end of this one, because I have added something that a lot of you guys have asked for for a while now. I don't want to say what it is, but y'all know what my day job is, so that, that's a bit of a hint. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Jordi Seegers of the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative. All right, so tell me who you are, where you work, and what you do there. My name is Jordi Seegers. I work at the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative. Uh, I'm based out of Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island in Canada. And uh, my official job title, uh, if I can get it right myself, is uh, I am the Canadian National Bat White Nose Syndrome Scientific Program Coordinator. That is a lot of words. I, I look forward to diving into what all of those mean. <laughs> too, too many words, yes. <laughs> so basically, you're the bat guy, right? Yeah, that's that's the easy way to put it. I, I would call you Batman, but I, I think it's already taken. So uh. <laughs> I, I'm afraid it is, yes. I don't wear the cool suit that Batman does. That is a shame. <laughs> so um, tell me, I'm, I'm noticing a slight accent. Uh, where, where are you from? 
That's right. I'm originally from the Netherlands. Um, I've lived in Canada for uh, about eight and a half years now, coming up to nine, um, and uh, have enjoyed it uh, ever since I moved here. That's awesome. I I love Canada. I've toured through. I've probably spent about mm, three months of my life in Canada now on various tours and stuff, and I love it there so much. It's Uh, great. Great Great people, great, great wildlife, uh, beautiful nature. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. All right. So I have a bit of a tradition on this podcast. Uh, Sometimes when we're going to have one very specific topic, I like to start with something completely different than that topic. And so I noticed on your your pre-interview form that you mentioned that you've worked with New Guinea singing dogs. (laughs) Tell me everything. All right. It's uh, it's not that glamorous. Um, so it, it, it is kind of how my career working with uh, wildlife kicked off. Um, I was doing my undergrad degree in wildlife management in the Netherlands. Uh, not too interesting, uh, I suppose. I mean, it, it's a cool degree, uh, but I wanted to move out of the Netherlands because there's just such cooler wildlife in other places. Now, I didn't actually get to go to New Guinea. Um, it, it's not, not that exciting a story. Uh, but for a um, one month long internship, I got to go to a wolf park, actually called Wolf Park in Indiana. Uh, and uh, that's where I basically learned how to take care of uh, these animals. Uh, they had wolves there, foxes, bison, and they had these two New Guinea singing dogs, very kind of like not well-known animals. And they're basically, um, you can describe them as like they're the dingoes of uh, of New Guinea, I suppose. Okay. Uh, okay. They, they, they look like little dingoes um, and they, yeah, they were very, very friendly, uh, very, very pleasant to take care of. So it, definitely a bit of a weird species uh, that I've encountered in a kind of a zoo-like or animal park setting. That's so cool. Now tell me, do they sing? So, yeah, their name comes from, uh, and I, I must admit, I haven't heard it. I haven't had the pleasure, but uh, their name comes from where, you know, wolves howl uh, and coyotes howl uh, or, or yelp. New Guinea singing dogs howl apparently is much more like a bit of a singing, more beautiful tone. But like I said, I haven't had the pleasure of hearing it myself, unfortunately. Okay, I got you. See, I, I'm, I'm seeing this wall of ukuleles behind you, and I was wondering if you were like doing duets with these dogs and teaching them some like Lady Gaga tunes or something. You know, <laughs> that would be beautiful. I mean, it, it is a lot of fun to actually grab a musical instrument uh, when you work with captive animals and uh, expose them to the music. Uh, I think at the time. I didn't bring my ukulele, but there were some colleagues of mine who brought uh, musical instruments, and um, they they played. I think it was the the clarinet for the wolves, and then had the wolves sing along with the clarinet. So yeah, pretty cool stuff. I also apologize if there's any sounds in the background here. I have um, a lizard with crickets in the tank, so sometimes crickets might start singing. Uh, and I have some rats running around, and they're chewing on their food and stuff. <laughs> no worries. I have a dog who might go insane, so we'll see. Okay. What kind of lizard <laughs> do you have? It's a leopard gecko. Oh, I love leopard geckos. That's so cool. Yeah, very, very beautiful animal. Yeah, I have one named Scott. He's he's a good boy. Oh, cute. <laughs> She's Chip. Okay, is Chip good at hunting? Because Scott is really bad at hunting. Chip is terrible at it. <laughs> I actually have her um, because... She was left at the veterinary clinic here and um, at the wildlife hospital. That's not where she's supposed to be. And it took too long for the staff to feed her because you have to feed her mealworms uh, with tweezers. Uh, But once I switched to crickets, she actually 
learned to hunt them. I guess they're a little bit bigger and um, I just throw the crickets in and she takes care of herself now. So That's awesome. Yeah. Sometimes with Scott, yeah. uh, we'll give him dubia roaches and you literally have to flip them over and even <sighs> then he may miss them. So you have to hold them in tweezers and oh, yeah, it's, wow. it's a journey, but he's, yeah. he's a good boy though. He's just, he's special. He's special. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So anyway, we've talked dogs, we've talked lizards. Let's talk bats. Um, yes, please. <laughs> so, so, okay. What got you into bats? Um, I guess the short story is I, um, I worked with a Canadian in New Zealand, um, on mostly on birds, uh, using what we call mist nets to catch birds, just nets, kind of like volleyball nets with a very fine mesh that the birds don't really see very well. And then you hope that they fly into it and you can take them out and study them. Um, and that Canadian got me in touch with a Canadian professor in Nova Scotia who is studying bats, uh, specializes in bats. And um, the professor had a, a master's position open. Uh, so I was put in contact. Uh, my Canadian friend put in a good word for me. And um, basically the skills, the misnetting skills to catch bats are, or catch, bir catch birds are transferable to bats. So that was kind of the pitch. And um, uh, she said, oh, to the professor, you got to get this guy because he's really good with field work. Um, if he can do birds, he can do bats. And then there I went to Canada, moved to Canada, did my master's degree and caught a lot of bats. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Very cool. And um, so let's get into this this uh, problem that you're trying to help solve for these bats right now. Go ahead and tell tell us about it. Yeah, so as my uh, extremely long job title suggests, uh, I coordinate uh, the national program to manage white-nose syndrome in Canada. Um, so white-nose syndrome is a fungal disease uh, that has been accidentally introduced, likely from Europe, into North America. It was first found in 2006 in New York State. Um, and from there, it's basically been kind of spreading like wildfire. Uh, we figured out since then that it is a fungus native to Europe, not native to North America. Uh, bats in Europe don't seem to be affected by it, but bats in North America don't have resistance against this fungus. So basically what the fungus does is uh, while bats are hibernating in winter in caves or mines or under other underground sites, and their immune system is basically not doing anything because they're in this state of torpor, their body is uh, saving energy this fungus starts to basically infiltrate their wing tissue uh, and it, it infiltrates their skin. So it's on their nose, it, 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 on their nose grows this, this fluffy white stuff, hence the name white nose syndrome. But really where it does the damage is uh, in the wings. It basically destroys their wing tissue. This, as a result, dehydrates the bats. So the bats arouse from their torpor state, from this hibernation state. They wake up, they're thirsty. Now, that's not really a problem. There's often a lot of water around, but by waking up, they increase their body temperature, burn a lot of their fat reserves that they need to survive this long winter. And they basically starve to death or they fly out to find food, which is in North America is insects. And there are no insects around uh, in winter in most places in North America. Um, so they starve to death or they freeze to death uh, on the winter landscape. So my job is uh, basically to coordinate what we call the white nose syndrome program uh, and to, to set objectives for the program to work with um, an interagency network, basically all kinds of experts in the field of, of bat ecology and bat health uh, to try to minimize the, the damage that white nose is doing to these bats uh, and protect bats in other ways so that we can help the survivors um, 
increase the chances of them surviving uh, all the other threats that vets are facing. Okay, cool. Um, so, wow, I have that's that's horrible, and I, I just I have so many questions uh, in so many different directions. But let's start with um, so what what kind of numbers are we talking about here? So um, it's very hard to count bets, but we do have some statistics, some numbers on um, the mortality that white nose syndrome has been causing. So as I mentioned, uh, it was found in New York State uh, in 2006 for the first time. And around 2012, it was estimated that about six and a half million bets had died from white nose syndrome. Now, that's eight years ago, and we actually haven't updated that number. And the reason is that um, since 2006, this fungus has been spreading from bat to bat, from cave to cave, uh, and other hibernation sites. And it started in that one place, and it moved across the landscape. Um, Every year, it seems to move about 200 to 250 kilometers I'm talking kilometers because in Canada, we use the metric system. Because of Um, course you do, because it makes sense and everywhere else in the world does. But yeah, I I get it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So so it moves about 200, 250 kilometers every year, uh, mostly because bats just, bats can fly. They move large distances. They move to different caves and mines and hibernation sites uh, before they settle on one. Uh, And so they moved that fungus around from one bat to the other. And um, where it started in New York State, it now has actually spread to, I can hardly keep track, um, more than 30 states in the US, uh, mostly the east, but it jumped uh, to the basically the Midwest as well, central USA. In Canada, it's in in all of the east, basically from uh, now from Manitoba in central Canada, all the way to Nova Scotia and further east to Newfoundland. Um, And in the U.S., it actually made a surprising and mysterious jump to Washington State as well, which was about a, um, a, I think, a 2,000-kilometer jump that it made. And we still don't really know how that happened because bats don't typically, these bats don't typically fly that far. To be Um, fair, they may have just been hipster bats that just really wanted to get to Washington because, you know, (laughs) and 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 like they they might have hitched a ride as well, just a free ride on a truck. And that's actually the reality that uh, that we might be facing, that bats are hipster bats are hitchhiking. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind Um, of hilarious. I love that. But uh, yeah. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so this is really a, a major problem. And, and it, it is where we're really talking about a possible extinction of multiple species. Because when people think about bats, they think a bat is a bat. But worldwide, we have more than th- more than 1,400 different bat species. Whoa. In, in uh, North America, in the United States and Canada alone, we have um, roughly around 45 to 50 bats. Um, when you go into Mexico, we're talking hundreds of different bat species. So in Canada and the United States, uh, white nose syndrome is affecting these hibernating bats, multiple species of hibernating bats. Um, and so here in Canada, basically the little brown myotis, the northern myotis, and the tricolored bat, um, these are just three small brown bats. Um, they are listed as endangered now by the federal government and by a lot of provincial governments. So we really are talking about a species that is now endangered. Uh, in the United States, the northern myotis is listed as uh, endangered as well. 
Um, so yes, we, we might be losing some of these species if we don't manage their populations properly. Whew, all right. Well, um, before we get into how you're trying to do that, um, you know, I, I'd like to think that all of my listeners are very enlightened and get that bats are super cool and important. But uh, I do know that for a lot of people, they are they are a scary animal. And, and there might be some people listening right now saying, "Woo, go white nose fungus. Let's take out all the bats. So tell me why we need to save bats. I know you're absolutely right. Bats have a, um, a very, very bad reputation um, and uh, mostly for very, very bad and untrue reasons. There's just a lot of misconceptions about bats. The, the, the fact, so many people think that all bats have rabies. This is not true. Some bats have rabies, but that goes for all wild mammals. Some of these mammals might have rabies. Something to keep in mind, but not something to fear bats for. Uh, people think that uh, bats drink blood. Now, there are vampire bats, but we don't have vampire bats in the United States and Canada, so we don't have to worry about them. Um, the, really, bats are like any any wild animals. Uh, any wild animal, bats are play a very, very important role in the ecosystem. So, United States and Canada, most of our bat species, and around the world, actually, most of the bat species eat insects. So, my easiest quickest argument for why should you like bats is well they eat mosquitoes and i don't know anyone who likes mosquitoes <laughs> <laughs> um, but maybe more so than mosquitoes bats eat a lot of beetles flies and moth species a lot of these insect species are the insect species that eat our agricultural crops they eat our cotton and our corn our tomatoes our potatoes and by bats actually eating these insects, they are providing this natural pest control uh, that keeps these insect populations down. And as a result, we don't have to spray as much pesticide on our crops to protect them from the insects. The bats are doing that for us. So firstly, that saves us literally billions of dollars a year that we don't have to put into pest control, that we will have to put into pesticides more if we lose our bats. Uh, and secondly, Fewer pesticides on our crops means we are putting less poison on our own food. Uh, so bats really, th that's, just, that's just what they do for us directly. Um, but in tropical areas of the world, um, uh, to say, say Mexico, uh, to, to stick with North America, there are bats that eat fruit and bats that eat nectar as well. And in doing so, these bats are distributing seeds of, uh, of fruits and they are pollinating flowers. Uh, to the effect that um, if we didn't have bats, we simply wouldn't have tequila because tequila is made from blue agave, which is only pollinated by bat species. So take away the bats, the agave disappears and there's no more tequila. Amazing. Well, there. I mean, that's the best reason right there, right? <laughs> it's a very good reason. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's very interesting. Cool. Well, thank you for, for sharing all of that. Um, I have a question and it might be dumb and I, I, you know, but sometimes I like to ask dumb questions and see where it goes. Um, do you think that the myth of the vampire, not, not actual vampire bats, but you know, the vampire and yeah, um, has anything to do with why bats are so uh, denigrated by certain people? Oh, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's, um, of course, vampires, Dracula, it, it didn't start that way, but it was definitely like Hollywood picked up on that. There are so many vampire movies, so many uh, versions of the Dracula story, and it's always tied in with vampire bats. Uh, a lot of these versions um, 
the, the, the vampires, they either turn into bats or they live among the bats or at the least they, they drink blood, uh, which is based on vampire bats actually drinking blood. Um, and I mean, Hollywood and, and then the movie industry, the entertainment industry is, of course, portraying these vampires del- deliberately. They're monsters. They are something to be feared. And so you can't really blame people for for making that deliberate link to vampire bats from the, the fictional vampires and saying, well, these are terrifying animals. And yeah, to be fair, I don't think I would like to have a vampire bat drink my blood. Um, but I do know that the vampire bat isn't going to turn me into a vampire. <laughs> I also know that they only drink a teaspoon of blood per night. So um, it's not that they'll drain you of your blood or something. Um, so, yes, not pleasant. Uh, but, yes, vampire stories have definitely um, made bats' reputation a lot worse. And a lot of people don't realize that other than South and Central America... There are no vampire bats anywhere in the world. No matter what these movies, I think it's Ace Ventura is suggesting <laughs> that there's vampire bats in India. There are no vampire bats in India. Um, so you, you, people in Canada here too, like, oh yeah, I, I was around a bat once and I was terrified it was going to drink my blood. We don't have those kind of bats, so don't worry. They're just there to eat the mosquitoes buzzing around your head. I'm so devastated to find out that Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, is not a good place to get animal facts. I, I'm <laughs> devastated. That's the whole reason I, I started very, this podcast. No, I'm <laughs> Very sorry to burst that bubble. And just as a professional who has worked with a lot of bats, you promise me you've never seen one turn into a humanoid monster that tries to, to you know, suck your blood? I promise you indeed. But, but in the... In, it's like the in the name of science, I must say that not observing something is not evidence that it doesn't happen. <laughs> so fair, until fair. I see a, a bat turn into a humanoid vampire, um, if I see that, I can guarantee you that they can. But if I never see it, I can technically never guarantee you that they don't. <laughs> That's true. So, folks, I guess the official Rossafari stance then is that there is a theory that bats do not turn into vampire monsters, but it can only be called a scientific theory at this point. <laughs> sure, let, let, let's go with that. Okay, yes. I'm sorry. I got really goofy on this one, but I, I couldn't help myself. That's okay. <laughs> um, but okay, so let's talk. Tell me about this fungus that uh, that came over here. Tell me what you know about it and, you know, do you know what's its name and just all that good stuff. Yeah, the, the fungus is it's interesting. Um, I guess... Um, the, the, the people, uh, the very, very bright people who study fungi species, uh, they don't like to give them common names. So it, it really only has a scientific name, which is Pseudogymnoescus destructans. Um, okay. So, I know it, it used to be Geomyces destructans, but that wasn't complicated enough. So they <laughs> upgraded it to Pseudogymnoescus destructans. Uh, but for short, uh, we always just call it PD. Uh, and so it's not to be mistaken with the actual disease, white-nose syndrome. The fungus causes the disease, but white-nose syndrome is not the fungus. Um, that's just a, a little side information that, that I always want to make sure that, that people understand that bats, like bats in Europe, can carry the fungus without actually having the disease. Right, right. Uh, and here, here in North America, too, there are some bats that can carry the fungus without um, having that disease. Um, 
So yeah, there, there's so much to, to say about this fungus. I've already gone a bit into detail of what it does to the bats physiologically, how it actually kills the bats. Um, the, the, the thing is that we don't really, well, we have methods to kill it. Uh, we know certain chemicals and like just concentrated alcohol kills it. But you can't go around and pour alcohol on bats. Uh, that's, that, that's not good for the bats either. We know that certain UV radiation kills it. Um, so there are a lot of smart people in North America who are um, studying how, how to kill this. And basically they're studying treatment options. What can we do? What, can we spray something in caves and mines that kills this fungus? Can we make a kind of a... a a portal of UV light that bats have to fly through and be blasted with UV light that kills the fungus. Uh, in the lab, these things seem to work, uh, but the actual field application of it always turns out to be much more complicated. Uh, even though some of these um, treatments are being used in the United States and in Canada now, um, it First of all, we for a lot of these way, uh, things to work, we need to go into caves and mines, or we at least need to know where these hibernation sites are, and then we can potentially treat these sites or treat these bats. But the truth is that we don't actually know where the majority of our bats go in the winter, or in the summer for that matter. Bats are such mysterious creatures. They make a lot of sounds like ultrasonic noises that we cannot hear. They fly around in the dark, so we can't see them without special equipment. Um, they're so small that putting radio transmitters or satellite transmitters on them, it, it just doesn't work to track them long distances. So a lot of bats just disappear over the winter and then appear again in the summer. So if we don't know where these bats go when they are most at risk of dying, then we don't really know how to get this treatment to them. So there are a lot of challenges. There are some uh, some solutions as well and, and smart people coming up with new solutions all the time. But we haven't found that silver bullet yet that um, actually fixes this problem. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So what's what's your current plan of action? Well, um, that's so where we're coordinating this, what, what we call the, the White Nose Syndrome Program, uh, we've done that for about um, six, seven, maybe eight years now. Um, and some, some things work. So the fungus doesn't just spread from bat to bat. It can also spread from a human going into a hibernation site. Fungal spores are microscopic. They can just stick to you. You don't even know you have them. So if you go into a hibernation site on one side of the country and then move to the other side of the country, it can fall off you and it can infect other bats. So we have developed um, decontamination protocols that basically if you are someone who needs to go into caves, we discourage it. Uh, but if you need to do it for research or whatever, then these are the protocols you can follow uh, to minimize the risk of you bringing this fungus to bats elsewhere. So these are ways where we... While bats actually keep spreading it amongst themselves, we can make sure that we don't speed up this spread. So there's those sorts of actions. Um, but we've come to the real realization that until we have a treatment that works, which maybe we'll never get to a point that we have a treatment that works like all over the continent, um, that we need to put a lot of effort into the bats that naturally survive somehow and we're only just starting to scratch the surface in understanding why some bats survive and others don't, uh, that we give those bats the best chance of survival. So bats are facing a lot of other threats. Um, 
They can be affected by wind turbines, literally being hit by the blades of a wind turbine and being killed. Uh, bats need forests and, hel- and, uh, and quiet caves. So protecting the right kind of habitat, cave habitat, underground habitat, and, and the right kind of forest, knowing what trees they like to roost in, making sure that we don't cut down those trees and that we protect the forest around these special roost trees, making sure that we identify where what we call maternity colonies are, where the female bats congregate that give birth to the pups. This is These are the most important bats to protect, making sure that we know where they are, know what kind of threats they're under and how we can mitigate those threats. So we're evolving our white nose syndrome program into a more holistic bat health program uh, because just focusing on the disease and, and mitigating the disease isn't, uh, in this case especially, isn't going to fix the problem. Um, we need to make sure that the survivors have the best chance that they can uh, to keep surviving and to keep reproducing. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. I'm I'm curious. Um, and I know that it's so hard to track bats and everything, but do you have any idea what the survival rate is? We don't really know. Um, there are some there are some interesting statistics, very devastating statistics on the mortality rate, at least. Uh, it, it's still a bit of an estimate because, like I said, we we can't track all the bats, uh, but. A lot of the caves, mines, and other hibernation sites, especially in the east of uh, of the United States and Canada, um, had been monitored very closely. And basically, researchers went in before white nose syndrome was there every year to count how many bats are there. And they get a pretty consistent number. Um, so, for example, I've done some of these cave surveys um, in Nova Scotia and in New Brunswick and in... Um, the, the, the biggest cave in Nova Scotia that I've gone into, uh, the, the population of bats hibernating in there was about 17,000. And, um, and other, other places too, uh, the populations range from a couple hundred to 20,000, maybe even more. And then white nose syndrome happens and you, a couple of years later, you keep doing your counts. And fairly consistently in these sites with a lot of like a high concentration of bats, we're basically seeing anywhere from 85 to 99.9% mortality. Oh. Yes. Yikes. So, and sometimes you could even say 100%. Well, you can't really say necessarily 100% mortality because we go in, we count bats, we go in again, and now we count no bats. It doesn't necessarily mean they've all died. Some may have flown out and gone away, um, but they are pretty loyal to their site. And if they need to leave their site in winter, there is a high chance that they do die. So this, um, to be on the safe side, n- up to 99.9% of bats in certain sites die. Well, that's not much more optimistic than 100% or, yeah. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's not a great number. Um, it's devastating. Yeah, wow. Oh, man, I didn't realize it was that, that crazy. Um, so do you know anything about, um, I know you said like that it, it can be transferred from just these little spores on people or bat to bat um it if there's like a colony of bats that is is hibernating together um is it likely that they will all just get it and then it's just that some survive and some don't or are there bats are you finding bats in these colonies that for some reason aren't getting the disease it's uh it's it's probably a bit of both so you can imagine that um it's very much like human diseases and now is such a 
appropriate time to talk about uh, human contagious diseases. Um, imagine a contagious disease and um, you have it and you are near other people. The more people you're near, the more likely you're going to spread it to these people. So, of course, I mean, we don't have to beat around the bush. That's exactly how coronavirus works. Now, that is a virus and white nose syndrome is caused by a fungus. But in a way, it, it works a little bit in the same way. So when you have these hibernation sites with high concentrations of bats and one or two or a few bats have this disease. And when I go, went into those sites, you can see basically a blanket on the wall, a, a blanket of bats. They are body to body. They're, they're, they're huddled up together. Well, if one of them is sick, that fungus is going to spread basically to probably all or almost all of those bats. Now, some bats might just not be so social. They might be in that same site, but they might be hanging off on their own a little bit further away or tucked deeper into a corner in a crevice of, of the rocks. That bat is less likely to come in contact with this fungus because it's less social. Same as in with coronavirus. If we act less social, if we social distance, there is a smaller chance that we get this disease from other people. So it's, it's kind of the same for the bats. There are other things that help as well. If you are a fatter bat, if in the fall you fattened up much more, then you have a lot more fat reserve. So you might wake up from this fungus just as much as your neighboring bat, but your neighboring bat was kind of skinny to begin with. So they burn through their fat reserves much faster. If you are bigger and a fatter bat, you might be able to survive and make it to spring. You have a higher likelihood. And then it turns out there are other things as well. Skin microbiome. We all have it. Um, all mammals have it. A lot of other animals have it as well. We just have microorganisms living on our skin. Now, white nose syndrome is a skin disease. It's a fungus that, that destroys skin tissue. But there are bacteria that compete with with the with PD, with this white nose syndrome fungus, and basically prevents the fungus from growing on some bats or from actually establishing on these bats, or they just inhibit the growth a little bit so that the fungus can't grow as much and doesn't affect the bats as much. So that's actually one of the treatment options that's being explored in Western Canada, um, where they've harnessed these microorganisms from bat wings that have this natural property to prevent the growth or minimize the growth of this fungus. Uh, and what if we can put that on other bats and then have the bats spread this amongst each other, just like uh, the, the white nose syndrome would spread among these bats, or I should say that fungus PD would spread among these bats. Uh, then maybe we can equip these bats with the weapons that they need to fight white nose syndrome. Science is so cool. <laughs> That's just yes, so and, cool. Yeah. I just, and, and just, ah. like, it, it's such a, such a depressing topic, of course, because like I said, uh, about six or probably more than six million bats have died. 99.9% .9 of bats in a lot of places die. But I'm glad that we have some of these good news stories that there are some promising treatment options out there. There are also, especially here in Eastern North America, where where before we, all, we thought that all these bats hibernate in large numbers. And so now they're all, or most of them are dead. But it turns out here and there, we're finding pockets of bats that have survived for eight years now. And it, it, it'd be very surprising if they haven't really come in contact with this fungus by now, but maybe they haven't. Maybe they're in different sites. They might just be less social bats. So a, a natural adaptation, part of the evolution against white nose syndrome, 
might be that the less social bats are better at surviving. So there are some, among all the depression, uh, the, the, these de- depressive stories, there are some, uh, some positive stories that, that bats are hanging in there, even to a certain degree, even without our help. That is, yeah, that's really cool. That's, uh, yeah, I, I love talking conservation, but I mean, it always is going to start with a depressing story if you have to conserve something. So, exactly. you know, yeah, yeah, I get it. <laughs> um, have you, I, I know that bats are very uh, trainable animals, a lot of bats. Um, have you thought of training them to wear masks and socially distance? <laughs> I'm kidding. We can't even we can't even train humans to do that. Let's be honest. <laughs> exactly. Well, if, if anything, I feel like some some animals are uh, better at those things than people are. <laughs> you are not wrong, sir. <laughs> oh man. Um, it, it, it's funny actually that you that you mentioned that you make the joke of bats are trainable animals. I don't know if that's exactly true because uh, bats don't make uh, very good pets, of course, um, but. Bats are very, very intelligent animals and, and often intelligence and being able to train a species kind of go hand in hand. Like these bats have to be intelligent because it might be surprising to a lot of people. That bats are, they are not mice. They're not rodents. They're in their own group called Chiroptera. Um, and so what sets them apart from, from rodents, a lot of things do. But one of them is that where rodents, like a mouse would live one year and has a lot of babies, bats can live, the, the species that we work with can live more than 30 years, but they'll only have one baby a year at most. They're very, very slow at reproducing, but live a very, very long life. And if you live a long life, you have to have a good memory. So these bats can remember a lot of these places that they know are good for them. They're, they're summer roosts and they're winter roosts. So they're, they're just highly intelligent animals and they're social animals, which often also requires a high level of intelligence. Um, so yeah, a lot of people don't realize it. They just see like vermin with wings uh, that flutter around. But actually, every single bat. Also, because I, I got to see a lot of bats when I uh, studied them uh, and had to catch them. Every bat has like their own personality as well. There's just much more to these tiny little animals than uh, than a lot of people think. I, I yes, I will tell you. I got to hang out with some bats and even even hand feed a bat um, at at Ooh. Elmwood Park Zoo. And uh, yeah, no, I learned all about their personalities, and you could see them in action. Like it was just you know, oh, th- this is purple bat, and she's like this. And then I watched her do that with her. Uh, it, bats are incredible animals. They are they are so yeah. cool. Yeah, I, yeah, very cool, very fascinating. I I can literally talk about them for. 12 hours straight. Uh, well, I don't, I don't think my voice would uh, hold out, but the, the, the amount of, of knowledge to learn about bats, you can just talk about them forever. No, definitely. They are. Yeah, they're really cool. Really, really cool. Uh, and I love that you're working so hard to, uh, you know, help keep them around. That's, it's very cool. It's, uh, it's important work. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not just me. There's, there's literally uh, hundreds of us in, in North America alone. Uh, that are trying to save bats. And we actually have uh, annual scientific meetings uh, where literally hundreds of bat nerds come out together to one place in the United States or Canada. A couple of years ago, Mexico, very lucky, very, very beautiful, exotic nice. location. And we we share about our unpublished research, our, our cutting edge research about bats. It's It's amazing. Oh, you're such a nerd. I love it. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I am too. That is not an insult. So uh, no. you are on a science podcast for a reason. Oh, that's just, that's just great. Um, so what's, what's next for you? 
Um, well, it's a it's a big big job to really turn this white nose syndrome program into this holistic vet program. So that that's really the big challenge for this year, I'd say, uh, because we're basically trying to put the focus for, from this one disease that's affecting bats to basically everything that is affecting bats, both in bad and good ways. Uh, so that's going to be a pretty, pretty uh, big project to work on. Um, but again, I'm not alone at that. Uh, I have great colleagues and uh, we just have so many partners uh, across the continent that, that help us with this. Because really, I am, compared to a lot of people in North America, I am not the expert on all of this. Uh, you, you can't be the expert on, on all things to do with that. So we definitely rely a lot on uh, all the smart people, uh, all the smart researchers and, and biologists, um, wildlife managers, um, pest control operators. It's like really... A, there's a lot of layers to managing uh, these species and, and preventing, hopefully preventing extinction. <laughs> so it's, it's a good goal to have. Um, what's your favorite animal that's not a bat? A fox. Oh my Probably gosh, Probably yes. just, just, just a rat fox. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, uh, when I was at the wolf park in Indiana, that's when I fell in love with foxes um, because they, they had a couple of foxes there as well, basically to show the difference between like, you got a wolf, here's its cousin, the fox. And um these foxes were just very, very tame as well. So taking care of them was very easy and pleasant because you could just actually enter the, their enclosure. And um, just like with bats and, and really like any animal, most animals, I should say, that I've worked with, you, you get to know their personality and they're just such beautiful animals. Um, and I'm, I'm still, depending on, on the day when you ask me what my favorite animal is, I might just say fox. I might not always say bats. Um, now, a good a good mixture of the two would be flying foxes, yes. which which aren't foxes. They are true bats. Uh, they are fruit eating bats, but they are called flying foxes because they are bats that look like a fox with wings, and it's just the most magnificent thing in the world. It really is. <laughs> they have a great exhibit of flying foxes at the Columbus Zoo, and um, yeah, you can get up. I mean, it's through glass, but you can get really close and see their little fox faces, and it's yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. I, I was fortunate enough to to hold a Malayan flying fox, which is uh, the biggest bat species in the world. It's a six feet wingspan. Oh! Uh, they they are giant, but so friendly. This particular bat was unreleasable, so it, it grew up with people, and it was just a very very social animal. I mean, talk about uh, teaching bat tricks. Uh, this this would have been the bat to teach the <laughs> trick to put a mask on. <laughs> oh man, that's that is awesome. Yeah, I love and I love foxes too. Um, I have three neighborhood foxes, and they very they cool. love to. I, oh, I see them on walks and stuff. Actually, um, last night I got home, and as I was pulling into my my parking area uh one of those foxes was sitting on my stoop and like ran in front of my car back off into the the trees you know yeah. but and i just oh it just makes my heart sing every time i see them they're beautiful here on prince edward island we're fortunate we have a lot of foxes a lot of urban foxes so they're right in the city um so you, you hear them scream at night during mating season it, it sounds like someone's being murdered but but the resident population of, of people here is kind of used to it um, so yeah, I, I always have my camera on me when I'm walking anywhere and I've got hundreds, if not thousands of pictures of the foxes here in Charlottetown. They're just so photogenic. Absolutely they are gorgeous animals. They are. I love that. Yeah. I, um, I've told this on the pod 
before, but in case people haven't heard it, um, when I first moved to this area, like you said, foxes screaming sound like somebody being murdered. And uh, it was about 2.30 in the morning, and a fox started screaming. And I thought I, there's a park like right across from my place. And I literally thought someone was being murdered or raped in the park. And so I jumped out of bed, threw on flip flops. I was just wearing like a pair of, you know, sleep shorts or whatever, no shirt. And I went running outside, determined to be the hero and save the, had my phone ready to call 911 and, and then realized it was a fox and I'm an idiot. Um, and you, you, you disturbed something very beautiful yeah. uh, that night. Yes, yes, yes. I did. But I've also had the chance to, I've actually been close enough to some of the foxes out there to see them when they're screaming. And it's really hilarious because foxes are small and they don't like mm -hmm. open their mouths really big. The noise that they know, get yeah. is insane. It, I was watching a fox scream and still was like, Are, is that is that you? You're barely moving. You're, oh, no, that's that's very you. And it's very loud. But yeah, yeah very cool. I, I, I ran into that same situation in my first year in Charlottetown. I saw a fox and then I heard this bird that I couldn't identify. And and then I realized anytime I heard the bird, the fox kind of opened its mouth. <laughs> um, and yeah, it turned out that's why I couldn't recognize the bird. It wasn't the bird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. Uh, is there anything else that you want to say about your program or bats or anything like that? Oh, so much to talk about bats. Um, I guess I, I don't know if uh, if people want to know what they can do to help bats because um, there there are some things that that people can do at home. You can install what's called a bat house or a bat box, um, and this the bigger they are, the better they are. And uh, this can be occupied by female bats in the summer uh, that will use these places to give birth to their pups. So it's very very important habitat. Uh, people who have a bit of property keep keep old trees standing. If your tree if it's not at risk of falling on your house or on your car, uh, dead and dying trees are what bats thrive in because they, bats, like I said, they aren't rodents. They can't chew holes themselves. They depend on natural cavities in trees. Um, so they love to go into the holes of dead trees and that, that's where they naturally roost. Um, if you have any sort of water on your property, uh, keep it free of, of, of algae. Um, it's, if, if it's... Like open water is really good for them. Bats drink from it. Insects emerge from it. It feeds the bats. And if you, instead of planting uh, exotic, pretty flowers in your flower bed, if you just uh, plant native flowers and native plants, that attracts more native insects that the bats actually feed on. Um, so you can basically provide, uh, between a bat box, uh, water, and native flowers, you basically have a, a bat airbnb <laughs> very cool and the air being the bats flying through the oh, air oh <laughs> jeez oh the two of us should not be allowed to talk to each other too many too many jokes <laughs> yeah um cool and that leads us up to the rasafari poop story so tell me something good sure i'll just take it very literally and, and go for an actual poop story um uh, on a completely different species, uh, I had the pleasure of uh, doing a lot of uh, work with an uh, ecology and conservation department in New Zealand. And I even got lucky enough to work with some kiwi birds. I mean, it doesn't get more New Zealand than that. <laughs> uh, and um, so we're, we're on these like tiny little offshore islands where uh, you're very limited in what you can bring. So I basically had one pair of pants that I brought for the whole week. It's fine. You just get muddy. Everyone gets stinky. 
equally stinky, so you don't really notice it. Um, but a lot of animals, uh, including kiwi birds, if you catch them, because they think you're a predator, they think you're going to kill them, it's very stressful. So we really only do it when we have to for research. Um, so in this case, we had to. You catch these animals and a lot of them instantly empty their bowels. So they, they poop on you. Sometimes it's just to make them lighter so that it's easier for, for them to run away or fly away. Well, kiwi birds can't fly. Uh, sometimes it's just literally to be gross and to put a gross flavor in your mouth, for example. I was fortunate enough, this is not a poop in, in the mouth story. <laughs> but um, yeah, the kiwi bird, I caught it and it basically emptied its uh, its bowels on my pants, on my one and only <laughs> pants that I brought. So, um, I mean, I've been pooped on by so many animals. It's kind of a thing I take pride in and I brag about it. I mean, I've been pooped on by penguins. I mean, it doesn't get much cooler <laughs> than that, nice. right? Uh, depends on who you talk to because a lot of people are like you're bragging right now i, I didn't realize um but um yeah the kiwi poop gets really gross especially the longer you don't wash it so um yeah i was definitely the stinky one in in that group and um and i mean talk, talking about uh, penguin poop because it's kind of a very similar story where i had one pair of field pants and, uh, and the, the penguin emptied its bowel well now you're talking about a bird that eats fish so something pretty stinky goes in. Just imagine how stinky this stuff is going out. So that was not a good time. And in our little bunkhouse, it's a one room only. So those pants were with me all the time, including the smell. So that's my poop story. Fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Penguins are notorious poopers. That's uh, yeah. that's pretty great. But yeah, no, I'm with you, man. That is a badge of pride to have been pooped on by a kiwi <laughs> i am jealous right now that's really cool that's really cool. i'm glad you think so because not everyone responds that way <laughs> no i do i very much do thank you so much for doing this this was fun my pleasure thank you very much for for highlighting bats they need all the the good publicity they can get definitely <laughs> You know, I am constantly in awe of the effort uh, and the science and just everything that goes into conservation. It's it's really amazing, and I'm I'm thankful to uh, Jordi for uh, sharing his tale and, and talking a little bit about that. Hopefully, uh, they can come up with a way to save the bats because we need these bats to be saved, y'all. Um, if you're interested in checking out the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative, you can find them at CWHCRCSF on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And of course, that handle will be available in the show notes, so you can go and click on it there rather than remembering all of those letters. So a while back on Instagram, I put up a poll asking if any of you would be interested in hearing some of the various tunes that I've uh, played drums on and recorded for different artists uh, over the years. And the overwhelming response was yes. So now I'm going to put one of those songs after this little bit here and before the Stiderk. Uh This is a song called Trapped in the House. We recorded this uh, in quarantine. Not together, obviously, and it is about quarantine and what was going on with all of that early on. Um, and it is by the artist Jacob Tischler. So here is Trapped in the House.
Thomas Power Studs on them tires and an engine that speaks to me uh, 200 miles and a full tank of gas, Lord I got the guts to go anywhere I want to be Got that high suspension when the road gets rocky ahead Oh yeah But I'm in detention Every road leads right to my bed Yeah Cause I'm trapped Trapped in my house Forever Yes I'm trapped Trapped in my house Life going slow I got those dreams of flying down the highways Lying below Yes Trapped in my house, nowhere to go. Come on out! I got a girl on the far side of town, Lord. Brings me nirvana when I wanna go. Two miles of torture between heaven and hell, Lord. I got a girl who can really put on a show. Now I'm realizing that this love thing ain't overblown. No, it ain't. So I'm compromising Cause tonight I gotta love her alone Oh, oh, oh Cause I'm trapped Trapped in my house Forever Yes, I'm trapped I'm trapped in my house I can't get my way I gotta let her see How much better we'd be if she'd stay Oh That's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. 
Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.